Hello and welcome to another episode of the Sega Guys. For those that don't know me, I'm Dan, aka Dan the Mega Driver, and here with me as always, my good friend, he's the big blue to my asteroid, it's James, how are you doing James? <laughs> very well, thank you very much Dan, yourself? Yeah, not too bad mate, not too bad, usual stuff still going on, just uh, been playing a bit of bit of Saturn tonight, how about yourself, what have you been up to? Um, I've been fitting a kitchen mate, so I'm shattered. <laughs> now that's one hell of a game. <laughs> it's not as much fun as Sega Rally, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> you do get a sense of achievement at the end. I will, and uh, unfortunately if you if you mess things up, there's no restart button, so... <laughs> That's true, very true, <laughs> mate. <laughs> but uh, we, um, we're very privileged to have a, a, another guest on the show tonight. So um, when we put out the call to the, to the community a while back, saying that we're going to do these, these my favourite Sega, um, one guy... Uh, came back to us just like a sonar. He responded. So tonight, I'm proud to uh, to introduce uh, Anthony Cox. Anthony, how you doing, mate? Uh, hello to you, Dan. How are you? I'm pretty good. Yes, yeah, very good, mate. Very good. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the, on the show. And how have you been? What have you been up to today? Any gaming? Uh, no, actually, I haven't been gaming a lot this week. Uh, I've been kind of taking a break. I blasted through the medium last weekend which was my big game to go through i'd only just bought it when it was out but i didn't get to play a lot of it mm-hmm. until last weekend so sat down last weekend start to finish worked through the whole thing it was an absolutely fantastic game if i'm honest uh, really enjoyed it looked great uh, performed pretty well even on my mid-range uh, gpu on my pc mm-hmm. so i was pretty happy with that um yeah it's it's a little bit different from a horror game. I think if anyone goes into it expecting something like Resident Evil or Silent Hill, uh, they're probably going to be a little disappointed with it. It doesn't really play like that. Um, it certainly pays homage to both series, but it's very much its own thing. Uh, it's very much uh, just experience the world, take in the story, and yeah, just play through it. Experience everything that's going on and take in the whole story as you go. It's It plays a bit like a point-and-click game at times with horror elements surrounding it so it's a very interesting idea a lot of interesting ideas in there sounds good you, do you know what mate you've just sold me on it i've downloaded it as part of game pass on pc but i've been in two minds about uh, getting started on it i've, I've got a uh, i think it's rx 580 that's exactly uh, what i have oh is it so yep. you saying that it performed well in your piece it gives me hope uh, for mine then <laughs> It did. I think it averaged 30 frames on Ultra for the whole thing. Now, it was a little laggy in one or two areas, but it's not the sort of game that really is badly affected by that. So, Anthony, it's uh, great to have you on the show, uh, especially on my favourite Sega. But before we get on to the Sega loveliness, uh, just tell us a bit about about yourself and how how you got into gaming, really. What was your your first system, first games? Uh, My first system goes back to... I suppose I'd have to say the late 80s. Um, It's not a part of my life. I was so young, I don't have a lot of memory of what I really played in what order back then. Um, But essentially, my elder brothers had two computers uh, at home, which were an Auric 1, which was a computer I'd very rarely seen. It was mainly up in our attic, and occasionally it came down and we played a handful of games on it. The main one we had when I was first kind of getting into any sort of computer games was the ZX Spectrum 48K. Um, the only games I remember on Auric 1 specifically, I remember there was a game called Harrier Attack, which was quite good, mm-hmm. and Zorgon's Revenge, which was a little platform game. 
there were four sections and it randomly chose which one you went into every time you turned it on but there was one game which was a kind of like a uh, horizontal spaceship shooter and the other three sections were platform games and they were kind of in i really enjoyed that they were interesting concept for the time to have four different mm. uh, sections in it um there was also a, some kind of a pac-man clone but i never to this day i can't remember the name of it uh mm. i haven't a clue what it was called now all these years later when it came to the spectrum uh we're talking late 80s so we had manic minor that was out uh we had cobra we had renegade uh monty on the run was another one that i really enjoyed uh jack and the beanstalk was pretty awful but we had it it was still a game that we could play uh robocop was pretty good and in typical kind of zx spectrum late 80s tradition we did have a batman game that i never knew what it was because it never loaded it always failed before <laughs> the end I, I always got to see the loading screen of it and kept retrying it over and over again praying it would work but it never got through it so it was, I, I didn't figure it out till years later uh when youtube became a thing that it was actually batman the movie is what was on that that cassette All right. but i never got to try that one unfortunately <laughs> Yeah, I, n- I never got to play much Spectrum myself, but James, you had a Spectrum. You had a Specky, didn't you? I think that was your first, wasn't it, from memory? It was, yeah. It was a 128K plus two. Um, you mentioned Robocop and Batman. That was two staples of my Spectrum diet. <laughs> they were big Although my, 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 uh, my, my introduction, my first game on the Spectrum was uh, a light gun version of Bullseye, the TV show. <laughs> Actually, I remember go. we had a darts game. Uh, 180, that was another game we had. Never played that actually, one. Yeah, it's one that actually used to say 180 in a very gravelly voice out of the Spectrum speaker <laughs> when you hit one. Um, it was a very good game, actually. It was a good bit of fun. Uh, pretty good for the time. Oh, outstanding. So, Anthony, before we jump into your favourites, what, what were your first Sega games that you remember playing? Um, my first Sega games started around, I was very late to the Mega Drive party. I think it was around 1993. Again, a bit like the Commodore story, we got a loan of somebody's Mega Drive that they were looking to sell. Mm. And I remember it coming with two games because they're the same two games we got. We actually ended up buying that system off that person. Uh, again, it was one of my brother's friends that he bought it from. So this, I came home from uh, school lunch break one day for we only had a half an hour break at the time. Mm-hmm. It was only primary school at the time. It was for, uh, 1993, I think. I'm nearly sure it was 93 at this stage. And uh, my brother was in the room, in his room, playing through LHX Attack Chopper and Ayrton Senna Super Monaco Grand Prix 2. Mm. They, were, they were the two games that came with that system that he got a loan of. And he must have known, obviously, in advance he was getting this. He had rented Mortal Kombat 2. So it was at <laughs> some stage after that game was out that we got this this Mega Drive for a loan for a few days. And the first game I actually seen running on the Mega Drive was Mortal Kombat 2. Was that half an hour at that lunch break seeing yeah. that? And I just couldn't believe what I was watching on the screen. <laughs> a, bit, a bit again like Last Ninja, seeing real digitized actors on the screen jumping around and all these blood splatters and fatalities <laughs> and friendships. And it was crazy stuff. And, I, you know, things I didn't think were even possible on a computer uh, or on a console even. And it was just such a step up from what I was used to from the Commodore in terms of just about everything, the visuals, the sound quality, being able to use a joypad, uh, not just a joystick with one button on it. You know, it was (laughs) such a huge leap forward for a 10-year-old to see this in the the house. And then we ended up buying that system uh, with LHX, which was a game I never really put a lot of time into. I tended to put a lot of my time into Ayrton Senna Super Monaco Mm. Grand Prix. Uh, I I was exposed to that rather than the first Super Monaco Grand Prix game. And I absolutely loved that game. I played it to death. 
uh, mastered it as best I could, completed everything in it uh, over the months afterwards. It was just a phenomenal game. Oh, wow. uh, I much prefer that game to the first one. After going back to the first one, I find it's a little bit clunkier to play. Um, simple things like just putting your tire on the rumbles on the on the curbs going around the corner slows you down in this first game and it doesn't in the second one uh, so you can kind of ride the curbs a bit nicer in the second game and just the overall feel of the cars and everything i find is nicer in the second game and the presentation's a lot nicer and i think the music is superior but then again of course that's a lot of that is probably nostalgia talking as well because <laughs> it's the first time i played a mega drive game properly really was that one so yeah. that was my first real game to play on the Mega Drive. That was before I'd seen Sonic or anything else. Uh, I played Ayrton Senna Monaco Grand Prix instead. That's brilliant. I mean, LXH Attack Dropper is a, it's a pretty impressive game, but I'm like you, I've, not, I've never put an awful lot of time into it. But uh, I haven't put an awful lot of time into Super, uh, Super Monaco Grand Prix 2. But from what I played of the two games, I do feel like the second is a more refined experience. So no, it's a, a very cool way for you to be introduced to the system. And it's it's kind of uh, kind of interesting that your introduction to Sega is is uh, a racing game. Um, do yeah, you have that's affinity, right. Do you have an affinity for Sega racing games, would you say? Um, certainly that game was one. Uh, I didn't really hook into a Sega racing game fully. I suppose, I, uh, to be honest, Outrun was a huge one. Hmm. And I'm overlooking it because I played it in the arcade more so than I played it on the Mega Drive. Uh, I did play the Mega Drive port eventually. I was able to buy it myself years and years later. Um, but the first time I played Outrun, I'm nearly sure I actually played it on the Commodore 64 first, which wasn't a fantastic port. But I did happen to play the arcade of it, and that was just a phenomenal game. A really, really good game. Loads of fun. Um, so I had that experience in and Super Monaco Grand Prix 2 in. And I didn't really hook into a Sega racing game after that until James' favourite game of all time, uh, Sega Rally, <laughs> on, the, on the PC, actually. We never had a Saturn, unfortunately. So it was the PC port I played on that. <laughs> Now, we were lucky enough there that we had the arcade of Sega Rally nearby as well that I used to play regularly. By this stage, I had moved up to secondary school level, so I was going to school actually in the city close by, uh, and there was a place near where I was going to school that had the Sega Rally arcade in it. So I traditionally used to go down there on my lunch break and fire a few pound coins into it and work away, go home and practice at night on the PC and go into the arcade the next day and plow a few pound coins in and go again. <laughs> it's funny you should mention the PC because... Uh... Uh, James is. Uh, I think he's. I think you're beginning to hate the PC version, aren't you, James? From watching that video on, over and over. I don't know who this French boy is, right? I know his 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 handle is on speedruns.com, right? But um, I he's. I'm trying to copy the lines that he has and everything. He's he's got an absolutely insane time. I think it's three minutes eleven seconds that he does that, in. and I'm I'm trying to copy his line and and all that kind of thing and. Get the bumps off the other cars to get the speed boosts and things like that, and uh, it's it's not happening. But I think the PC version, the camera angle is closer to the arcade version than the Saturn is. I think if you if you look at the the Saturn version, the camera's different to the arcade. It's higher and more angled. Um, but if you look at the arcade version, the PC version, uh, the PS2 port spit, um, you know, <laughs> it's, it's it's lower down. <laughs> Um, compared to the, the the Saturn one, so whether that affects you know the lines that you can take or the, the kind of into each corner and whatnot, I don't know. But I is this boy is 
it's impressive stuff. It really yeah. is. Yeah, from what I remember of Sega Rally on PC, the handling is actually slightly different to the Saturn port as well. Well, the, yeah, the, the, the Saturn is the Saturn version is kind of very unique in itself. It, it does bring over the the different kind of terrain, you know, the handling on you know dirt and asphalt and all that kind of thing. But yeah. um, if you play the arcade version, obviously you get the wheel. So straight away there's a disconnect there unless you use a wheel with the Saturn. But um, if you play the PS2 version with a controller, from what I've been told, um, it, it does handle more like the arcade version, whereas the Saturn version's got its own very kind of bespoke feel. So, um, again, whether that plays anything into it, I don't know, but uh, I am now obsessed with, with hitting that time. I don't suppose he has put up what type of PC he's playing that on. They don't know. They just basically put the... Oh, you can have the leaderboard as everybody, or you can filter it by platform. Um, and I think the best Saturn time on there is 3 minutes and 15 and I'm on. I'm almost ticking into three minutes eighteen. So I'm coming for you. And I'm telling you, <laughs> my, my videos get on that site. I'm, it's happening. Now, one of the odd things I remember about some of the early Sega PC ports is they're very tied to the hardware of the time. Once you step up to a more modern system, you get weird sort of timing issues with the mm, countdown yep. timers and things like that. I've seen with Virtua Fighter on PC. I think it just literally goes three, two, one, go. And then the fight kind of catches up with itself, and you're okay. You're able, you're able to fight, <laughs> uh, but the countdown at the start actually it's ready go for Street Fighter, isn't it? Or Virtua Fighter, sorry. Um, I think that that happens in a split second, and then everything sort of regains its composure, and everything runs fine for the fight afterwards. But I don't know if something like that affects Sega Rally. I'd be interested in seeing if he's running it on modern hardware and whether mm. the the new CPUs are affecting how quick he's able to get his times down to. No, See, I, I, I don't actually know if that what you said there about Virtua Fighter, because I was playing VF2 on Xbox the other day, and I noticed that the announcer at the start is absolutely rapid. Like, <laughs> yeah. you, you, you've got the, the fight one, ready, go. You've, you've got the, the, the gaps, but on the Xbox it's Fight one, there you go. It was Jesus, oh, for God, wait a minute. You're chucked right, aren't you? Um, so it's funny you said that, that that kind of start part is sped up because the Xbox version does that as well. That's very interesting. I didn't know the Xbox version was affected by that. Uh, I have seen that the PC version that you could buy boxed off the shelf back in the mid-90s is definitely affected by that. Uh, I didn't realise that the re-release was on Xbox. That's very interesting to hear that. Yeah, I'm... I I've, I've not noticed it myself, but I've got the uh, I've got the PC version, uh, the box PC version. Um, I, I took a picture of it uh, earlier earlier today, actually, with all my other copies of Virtua Fighter, seeing as I'm kind of obsessed with it <laughs> at the moment. But um, I'm definitely going to install it on my PC now and see how it performs. It will probably be an absolute nightmare, but <laughs> you've aroused my curiosity now. <laughs> yeah, so. With all that said, then, I think what we'll do now is we will move on to your, your choice of music track. So, James, if we if we set the set the track to play now. Yep, so here it is. Here it is Anthony's music of choice.
Anthony, if you would like to introduce that for us. Yep, that is the track uh, Getting Muddy off of Sega Rally on the Sega Saturn and the PC port, of course, but we're concentrating on Sega here today, so I'm going to choose the Saturn port for this particular one. Uh, it's the Mountain Theme. Uh, now, for the longest time, I had forgotten what that was even <laughs> called, uh, that track. Uh, it always makes me want to break out the air guitar of that one. I think it's just a phenomenal <laughs> bit of work. Um, fantastic. I, I loved the kind of early, mid-90s Sega screaming Japanese guitar rock yep. soundtracks. I've just loved them for so long. And I'm very sad they don't do that anymore because it's just an incredible thing. Um, just a funny story about that particular thing. I remember, I think it was, I'm nearly sure it was Mean Machine Sega gave away a CD of Saturn Audio back when the Saturn first came out. Uh, and Ignition was the Sega Rally track that was actually on that disc. The one that plays on the bonus mm -hmm. track that I can never remember the name of now because it's been so long since I've actually reached it. And uh, there was another one, the soundtrack to some kind of a football game that was out at launch and I can never remember the name of that. Is it International Victory yeah, Plus International or something? International Victory Goal, I think. Inter Victory Goal, that's the one, uh, which has a, another amazing soundtrack for yeah. a football <laughs> game, just completely out of place. But it was the thing to do at the time, I think. A lot of the racing games in particular had these screaming rock soundtracks. I remember uh, the first Formula One on the PlayStation 1 having uh, Joe Satriani music in it. I mean, it was just incredible to hear these screaming <laughs> guitar tracks because uh, I'm I like a bit of rock music anyway myself, as most people who follow me on Twitter probably know already. Uh, I'm always posting different rock videos or metal videos. But uh, yeah, these these tracks stood with me. And I always loved getting to the mountain track just to hear that theme in the background. I was always disappointed that you only get to do one lap <laughs> a lot of the time and it cuts it short. So I used to like playing in three laps on time trial or just the unlimited time trial just to listen to it. Of course, you could put it in your CD player at the time as well and blast it out, which was a, a cool thing you could do before it started making yeah. everything digital. <laughs> No, it's, it's great. I'm, I'm glad you said it was the, the, Saturn, and the Saturn version. Um, I imagine the PC versions and the Saturn version are identical then in terms of the musical arrangements, because I'm not sure if you've heard the arcade versions lately. I haven't heard the arcade ones since I played the arcade, so my memory of them is so... Uh, it's very bad now to remember what they sound. I remember they didn't sound as good. From... They played on a ukulele. <laughs> oh, good lord. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't heard that. I can <laughs> see, see the thing that gets me about the naming of, of Sega Rally's main three tracks is that they completely contradict each other. So you've got Desert Stage with Conditioned Reflex. You've then got Forest Stage with the track Desert Land. <laughs> and then you've got Getting Muddy on Mountain. It's like, hold on a minute, should these all not be switched about? <laughs> <laughs> No, well, I confused myself oh, when, when when I saw what your choices were, Anthony. I confused myself because I used to, I used to get, I used to change the music around. You know, you can do that. I'm not sure if you can do it on the PC, but on the Saturn, you could go into the options menu and switch which music you wanted on which stage, because the, there's two forest tracks out, uh, music tracks, and for some reason, I used to put "Getting Muddy" as the forest stage. And I confused myself when I when I saw Get Muddy, I immediately thought, is that one of the forest stages? And then I played it again. I was like, oh, God, no, it's it's the mountain stage, which is, it's like you say, James, it's the stage with the least amount of mud in it. Exactly. <laughs> that, that, that guitar part, that's just... One of the things I remember about the PC port, I can't remember if this also applies to Saturn, but the default track they selected for Forest is wrong. Yes, so yeah. 
there's there's two forests. I think there's a forest trek. Um, so Desert Land, I think, is the trek the theme that plays when you do the championship. And then there's the other one. Its name escapes me, which is when you do the practice mode. Is, is, that, is that right, James? That's right. Yep. Yeah. yeah if, if you do it in time trial or practice, you get a, a different different piece of audio. That's why I think that's why I used to get. I'm, I confuse myself when I think of this. But uh, the other thing about uh, getting muddy is it. It. I think it sometimes plays in the credits as well. When you win, well, I think for, for me, it's if you've got the cheats enabled on the Saturn, rather than getting the um, the, the vocal track at the end. Um, which I'm not sure. I'm not sure what, what it is that they're trying to sing on there. <laughs> Running that that one. <laughs> yeah. Instead of getting that, you actually get getting muddy if you've um, if you've used the cheat to unlock the strats or something. So um, yeah, you, you can hear it. The the track for um, practice is called Reckless Running. Yes, that was right. That gee, that rings a bell. Just even ah. hearing it, but yeah, you mentioned about the credits playing getting muddy. That's definitely in the PC version oh, as well. Uh, when you, whether you complete the game legitimately or not, it's definitely playing as the credits. I'm not sure with the Saturn one. Uh, I haven't completed the Saturn one, believe it or not. Yeah, it was it was frustrating me uh, late last year when I was I I was doing my top fifty Saturn games and I wanted to get some pics of the of the various cars and everything. Just I wanted to make sure that I unlocked everything first, so I just did the cheat codes to unlock lakeside and the strauss car take some pictures of them i thought right when well, i'll play through and see if i can get the credits to run and it did the um getting muddy theme instead of doing the um and it does like an acapella version of no, not an acapella it does an instrumental version of um my friend rally <laughs> and uh that frustrated me because i wanted to hear the cheesy singing so uh <laughs> I you, you were losing I was, I was texting you i was like what's going on <laughs> so i was, I was did the one where it actually happened, if I, if I remember, you were recording your telly and you just went, right, you bastard. <laughs> it was like... Yeah. It finally came up. It's keeping me awake at night. It was... <laughs> so I had to, in the end, I had, to, I had to delete my save file and everything, delete all, history, all record of me ever played it before, make sure that there's no remnant of me actually cheating play it again and lo and behold there it was i didn't even win the championship on that run i came second got nudged into the on the final chicane on lakeside course by the uh by, by the uh by the salika um so i came second but i still got the proper credits so yeah i'm convinced it's because i had the cheat codes on <laughs> oh brilliant song brilliant song so um favorite track out of the way then so and so we can now move on to your favourite game. So could you tell us what, what your favourite Sega game is? My favourite Sega game, and for anyone who was paying attention at the very <laughs> start of this uh, podcast, might have got a few hints towards it already. Uh, it's probably an unusual choice. It's a bit out there, I think. A lot of Sega fans would traditionally pick something like uh, Sonic or Streets of Rage or Golden Axe or something, you know, the more traditionally popular Sega games. But funnily enough, uh, I have an insane amount of love for Echo the Dolphin. And that became very quickly one of my favorite Sega franchises uh, over the course of mm -hmm. two consoles. Um, so yeah, my first experience with Echo was actually the very first Echo game, and that's the game I would choose as my favorite Sega game, would be Echo 1 on the Mega Drive. Brilliant. I mean, that, that definitely is a different different uh, choice because uh, it's, yeah, it's certainly a devices title. Me personally, I, I love it. 
I got it back in 1993 myself um, and fell in love with it straight away. So, yeah, what was it that what was it that won you round for uh, for Echo? What was it that that, that 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 was it was it instant love when you first played it? It really was, yeah. Um, it's, it was actually the first Sega Mega Drive game that I bought with okay. my own money. Uh, I bought it completely blind. I, I'd never heard of it. We'd only just got the Mega Drive at the time, and I had just about enough money to afford to buy a game. Um, and I had seen, there was a, a shopping centre my mother used to go shopping in every Thursday. And at one end of this place, uh, there was a computer section that had a Mega Drive set up and a Game Boy set up and a stacks of Mega Drive and SNES games and Game Boy games kind of on a on display beside all that. And I don't know why, but the first game that stood out to me when I looked at the display was Echo the Dolphin. And I picked it up, I looked at the box art, I thought, it looks kind of interesting. And I read the back of it. I thought the screenshots looked interesting. And I said, okay, it was cheaper for some reason than all the other Mega Drive games that were there. Uh, I think it was £20 at the time. Uh, and all the others were pushing to 30s yep. and 40s. So I said, okay, 20 is affordable. And it looks kind of interesting it sounds interesting i'm going to pick that up as soon as i get it together and it took me a few weeks to get the last few bits of the money together and i went in and bought it and i set it up got into it and instantly i loved the visual style of it i thought the graphics were really really nice uh the smoothness of the gameplay was really nice it just clicked with me the gameplay i've heard people say they never got to grips mm. with the controls or what to do and i have to say i've never even as a 11 or 12 year old or whatever I was playing the game at the time for the first time, I just, I just got through it. Uh, I didn't really find it that confusing to work my way through it. I mean, it's a very difficult game yeah. to beat, but at no point was I ever completely lost that I didn't know what to do. Um, I mean, the first level, you just kind of get dumped into a big lake and there's loads of other dolphins swimming around and it doesn't really give you any indication of what you should do. But I mean, if you talk to the first dolphin that's right next to you, he asks you, like, how high in the sky yeah. can you fly? Which kind of gives it away. And actually, if you read the manual, it even tells you in the manual, Echo leaps high out of the water and this whirlwind sucks everything out and he falls in and he's all alone. So the manual, the story in the manual is even kind of hinting at you what to do. So <clears throat> needless to say, I jumped out. The whirlwind comes down. You're left. The music gets very sinister at that point. Very quickly, it changes completely from the nice, relaxed kind of easygoing tones of the start of the level and you can move on to the next level where i say i keep saying it's the next level there's no passwords in the game at this point but it's the yeah. next section of the opening you can say the opening kind of split into two parts and all you really have to do in the second section is there's one barrier glyph you have to get out of your way to finish the section so you just have to find the key and unlock it and go out and again i, I didn't find any difficulty with kind of finding my way around or the controls or Finding that key lift did take a bit of work uh, because it is kind of hidden deep in a cave in the middle of the level mm -hmm. that you have to kind of go looking for. Uh, you meet an orca in there who reveals the first kind of part of the true part of the story that kind of says, you know, he doesn't know what's going on, but you need to you need to navigate north to find yep. the big blue. And he might have some indication of what's happened here. And, you know, the kind of air of intrigue about the story and the game, as I said already, I liked the gameplay of it. So it was immediately drawing me and I wanted to uh, find out what was going on with this game, what the story was about. Uh, the, the orca tells you you have to pa travel past the undercaves to find Big Blue. And the undercaves then is literally the first proper mm -hmm. level with a password that you come into. And 
that level is quite difficult, especially at the start, to find your way around. But it really kept driving me on to want to keep going further. It's one thing I've noticed with Echo, and it, in all the Echo games do this. Every time I play a level, I find that go that mm-hmm. little bit further each time. And it keeps driving me on of, well, okay, if I can get this far with this run and die next time I know that's, that problem is there, I'll get around that the next time. And I just kept driving at it. Of course, back then, we didn't have access to lots of games like we have now. If you bought a game, you tended yeah. to stick at it because that's all you had. So I stuck with Echo. I kept playing it. I drove on as best I could. And some of the levels were infuriatingly difficult. Um, very much so, actually, as you get further into the game. But overall, I, I really enjoyed it. It's just everything about it, the music, the visuals. The, as I say, the gameplay I found was very easy to get to grips with. I never had a problem with the gameplay. No, I, it was a game I loved from the minute I turned oh, it on. Yeah, because um, it's very momentum-based, really, isn't it? Um, kind of similar. I know it's completely opposite to Sonic in terms of, you know, Sonic's obviously very fast, very direct, whereas Echo's more exploratory. But they both have a sense of momentum with them. Uh, with Echo, the way that you build up your speed with the C button, you you speed up. You've got the dash with the with the B button, and you have to build those up. So there is a there is a focus on momentum. It's it was very satisfying to play. I I never actually finished it legitimately. Uh, I used to cheat because I could not get past the. Uh, I could get to I could get to Big Blue, um, but I couldn't get further than that. Uh, I think I think I did use the password system to get i think i got to the asteroid at one point um i think you have to move it's give it it's is it, is it the first game or the second fit game where you have to give it it's you have to find its spheres and give it is it both yeah both have yeah. that storyline both have that story arc um it's introduced there's only one globe missing in the first game i believe it's two oh, in the it? second yeah something like that yeah anyway. uh, i remember that bit that that bit drove me nuts so um after a while, it was uh, uh, turn echo halfway, press start, then right BC, BC, down C up, and it gives you the debug menu. And that was it. <laughs> Infinite. You know, I never knew about Did the you debug not? menu. <laughs> never, even to now. They were telling me something oh. I didn't realize the game had at this point. Uh, I, the only cheat I knew is you could enter Life Force as your password, and you would have, you would have Infinite Air oh, right. from there on. No, I didn't know that one. I, I knew the debug menu. Um, that's the only way I completed it in the end. Um, I don't know how. So did you say so you'd finished it? And then it took. It was a very hard graft. I have to be honest with you. There was a lot of tears and tantrums <laughs> over that game, but I, I got to the end of it. Oh. Uh, especially at the end, the last two levels are just. I was insane. going to say, how um, did you get through? Welcome to the machine. <laughs> with great difficulty oh Jesus even the thought of having to go through it again um, it's the one thing that puts me off replaying the game in some ways I always know that level is coming up uh, it's it's a really really difficult level which uh, Ed Annunciata who's the guy who created Echo the Dolphin actually deliberately made very difficult and he doesn't make any no. apology for it now even when he's asked about it he enjoys it that level so hard but it, it all came from the the I like a lot of games on the Mega Drive back then. I believe The Lion King was affected by this as well. Uh, they were worried that people would just rent the game and beat it in one sitting on a weekend. And so they deliberately upped the difficulty of certain parts of the game so as to prevent people just you know, renting it for £5 a night mm. or whatever. I don't even remember what rentals were back then. It was probably cheaper than that. But whatever it was, um, just rent it for a night, beat it in a night, and then yeah. not buy it. Uh, so his his 
paranoia, as he calls it, was that this would this would happen with Echo, and he deliberately made sure a lot of the levels were very difficult. And he definitely succeeded with that, especially that that machine level is cruel at the best of times. I mean, it, it's a maze of tubes and uh, kind of floaty platforms in the middle of the screen, and you it splits two ways or three ways, and you don't know which way you're meant to go. The screen mm-hmm. is moving by itself, so you have to keep up with yeah. the action at all times. You can't miss a beat, and if you take the wrong turn, it's instant death. Uh, and on top of that, you have these little holes in the scenery firing these kind of green yep. bullets at you, and you have the Vortex, who was the enemy of Echo, coming at you from all angles, and they'll just appear out of nowhere and take bucket loads of your health off in one go and you know you're trying to manage all of this and keep up with the screen and remember where to go yeah it's it's a tough old and if you get eaten by the last boss you get you go right back to the beginning of that stage if you you die or get eaten by the last boss you get thrown back to there's no password for the last boss if i remember right it gives you the password to the last boss after you beat Mm. the game which is a bit too late at that point um but yeah, it's it's definitely a, a game that takes a lot of work and a lot of patience, and that level in particular is is famous as being the, one of the hardest yeah. levels in the game. Uh, obviously, a Pink Floyd reference in there from Ed as well. <laughs> yeah, apparently, uh, if the stories are to be believed, he used to play Pink Floyd to... Who I, uh, I actually am unaware of who made the music for Echo the Dolphin. I know Spencer Nielsen did the yeah. CD audio for mega cd but i'm not sure who did the mega drive one offhand no, but you are uh, but, yeah he used to apparently play pink floyd songs over certain sections of different parts of the game and say this is the sort of feeling <laughs> i want for this part of the game and that's how the music was developed supposedly so, yeah it's, it's funny that we that we're talking about you know his, how he influenced the design of the game and his thoughts on it because it's a very interesting journey that echo had really <laughs> because um Ed seemed to come to this. He he came to this idea of a of a dolphin game. I think he was he was watching a fil- uh, a film called The Founding. Uh, sorry, he reading a book called The Founding. Um, yeah, so, so it's about a humpback whale. Uh, so it's run from the point yeah. from the right, yeah. uh, point of view of a humpback whale. And then he was reading a lot of a, a lot of stuff from John Lilly, uh, who's a very <laughs> very interesting character who used to try to uh, teach dolphins to talk. Um, that's right. Yes, uh, he he had said he was inspired by some of the works of John Lilly, but uh, he has always denied that he's named Echo after that project he was working on, even though they are the same name. Yes, an amazing coincidence. <laughs> yes, I know. Yeah, uh, apparently it came from Echo Location, uh, which was suggested to him by Clyde Grossman, who was his mm. boss at the time. Uh, suggested calling it Echo after Echo Location because that's what he was reading up no. on at the time. Uh, at one point, actually, you had uh, Al Nilsson on the show yeah. a few weeks ago. Uh, I believe he suggested calling the game Botticelli. Oh, did at he? one point. <laughs> I, I came across that reference online um, that apparently, yeah, the game started out just being called mm. Dolphin and then eventually uh, kind of became Delphinus at one stage. But I, I don't know how true this is, and it's a shame we don't have Al to come no. back to on it. Suppo- supposedly, because the likes of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was popular at the time, and they had named their characters after Italian painters, that's what the suggestion was <laughs> for Echo, was to call it Botticelli and follow that trend and try and jump on it. Uh, which I found very interesting when I found that reference. I, I As again, uh, who knows if that's truly... Uh, only Al can tell us if that's true, I suppose. Yeah. 
Sure. Yeah, it's it's interesting because that doesn't get I doesn't get mentioned in console wars because um, in console wars uh, there's a documented uh, discussion with um, with Tom with uh, Ed and uh, and with Al <laughs> and Ed saying forget about Mario and Sonic this is forget about good or evil people aren't going to want to be dolphins or say princesses they were going to want to transform and be dolphins and he goes into this 45 minute spiel to to tom and al, al nielsen and, and tom to say about this dolphin game and uh and and al says yep do it <laughs> go and do it <laughs> so yeah the stories from back then are really interesting um it's kind of interesting that the game was even made. He was supposedly had a lot of difficulty getting the game right. off the ground with Sega, that they weren't overly keen on it at first, but when they seen the first prototype for it, they were sold on what yeah. it was going to be. Um, yeah, it's just, it's very interesting. It's a very interesting game. I know, I, I know I've chosen it and it is a bit odd as a choice, probably for a traditional gamer, as I say, with Sega would have chosen something like Sonic more. So as Echo, I think I even played Echo before I played Sonic. Um, if I remember right, it's just a game that really struck me, and it was so different to everything else yeah, that was out absolutely. there. No, I was—I had played countless platformers on the Commodore because that's really all you got back then. Were a lot of platformers, a couple of driving games, but uh, a couple of kind of light gun game imitations. But uh, Operation Wolf was on the Commodore, but Chatty was a joystick and things like that. But generally, the majority of games you get, even the movie tie-ins, were all platformers. So then along comes this game where you're swimming around as a dolphin, you have to think about your air meter all the time. The puzzles, even though they are fetch the key and open the door mm. puzzles, they're done in a slightly different way to anything I'd seen at the time. The story was very different at the time uh, to anything I'd come across. It's a very sci-fi uh, story at the back of it all with a lot of time travel. Mm. Uh, it kind of leans, it kind of borrows heavily from kind of bits of Terminator with the <laughs> yeah. time travel aspect and then alien with the actual design oh, of the yeah. vortex species that you fight uh it's he's kind of pulling in a lot of different sci-fi stories and being influenced by them which was very interesting to me at the time um and it's just as i say it's a, it's a game that is like no other i've ever played even now when i go back and play echo i just always come away thinking nothing is really no. like this still um and especially with the dreamcast game uh i've I would go as far as saying I've not seen an underwater simulation done as well as that uh, on any game since. Um, maybe I'm wrong to say that, but that's just what my... I think I've often played the Dreamcast game even now as well. It's just the underwater simulation aspect is just fantastic for the time, what they actually did to put it all together. Um, it's just something I really enjoyed. Uh, as I say, the sci-fi aspects, to, and it's quite a dark game, which mm. I think a lot of people forget. It's quite—I wouldn't say scary, but certainly a creepy yes, game. Yes, something very ominous about um, the whole the whole setting. There is, yeah, it's very bleak at times, and as you go deeper into some of the levels, it does darken the background that is nearly fully black. It kind of mm -hmm. gives you the indication that there's something dark and scary lurking in here. Uh, the, actually, the, the, I think everyone had this experience. The first time I found the big blue, and he just suddenly appears on the screen, I nearly jumped out of the chair. <laughs> uh, just from the fright of it, I wasn't expecting this big huge whale to just suddenly appear on the screen. Uh, and the same with the asteroid, when you eventually find him, you just sort of go in, and it's this weird a DNA shaped swirling thing of orbs. <laughs> it's a very odd, uh, very odd construction, but it's something that he went with for the first games, yeah. especially. No, I think, I think, yeah, it, the first two, especially, are very odd. Um, the second one, the ending's very strange because he seems to go, you know, he's, he's told to destroy the time machine and instead he, 
he abuses his power and he seems to go off the rails a little bit. Uh, spoilers for anyone that's not played it, but it's uh, <laughs> all very strange. But I must admit, I never actually got round to playing the Dreamcast one an awful lot. Uh, I, I did get it in a bundle years ago of Dreamcast games. Well, I've got to get around to playing this, and I still I still haven't. <laughs> so it's a shame on me, really. Yeah, the, I don't know if you played it. James. The Dreamcast game. Sorry. Sorry, the, uh, the Dreamcast game is a complete reboot. It doesn't yeah. follow the timelines at all of the first games on the Mega Drive. Uh, the interesting thing is that uh, Ed wanted to do a third Echo. On He tried to get it together for the 32X yeah. or the Saturn as it went along, which unfortunately never got off the ground. And it's something I've seen in one of his tweets, actually, on Twitter. He was asked about, uh, you know, if the third echo was to ever happen, like what was it going to be about? And his answer to it was that it was going to continue this whole vortex species invading mm. the earth story. And that when echo went back in the time machine, sorry for the spoilers <laughs> again at the end of echo two, uh, he chooses not to destroy the time machine. He goes back in time. Uh, he's actually going back to the war that is taking place between the Atlanteans and the vortex. And he's going to try and help right. out in that war. That's apparently what was going to be Echo 3. Oh, that would have been very interesting because um, I do remember um, back when the 32X was being previewed and there was some sort of Echo demo on there. I'd love to have seen footage of it, but someone said there was, I just remember it vividly in my head. I was reading a magazine, can't remember which magazine it was. They said, we saw a demo of Echo and it looked absolutely incredible. Uh, I'm not yeah, sure if it would have been. The, yeah, that's where the question came from, I think, for Echo 3 when he was asked, because that was put to him about that 32X demo mm. that you're talking about. And was that a sign that we were supposed to get Echo for 32X? And that's when he admitted that for 32X and for Saturn, he was trying his hardest to get another Echo game off the ground, but it just never happened. That's a real shame. Yeah, so it's um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real, yeah, it's a shame, Echo, that it's it's kind of been on hiatus since, well, since the, the PlayStation 2 release came out. I know Epalooza did uh, did a Jaws game. I think it's Jaws Unleashed or something like that with the Echo demo, right, with the yes. Echo engine. But um, uh, yeah, it's a shame that there's been nothing from the series since then. Um, James uh, James only made me aware this week that there was actually a planned sequel for the for the Dreamcast game. Um, shared shared a video of me. I had, I actually had no idea that that existed. It's a shame that didn't come off the ground either. Yeah, I, I had heard there was supposed to be uh, an Echo 2 Sentinels of the Universe in the making that would follow on from the Dreamcast uh, Defender of the Future game. But I ne- until James showed me as well this week, uh, I was unaware that the footage of it had ever got out. Of, I'd never seen it before, so I, I was quite happy to watch that the last couple of days just to see what was actually in it. Uh, there's not actually a lot there. Um, it's quite glitchy and it's very unfinished in a number of places. Uh, I was a sad that they didn't put any proper music in that i know what they're, they're only kind of tech demos for each of the levels but uh, tim fallen's soundtrack to defender of the future on dreamcast is just an amazing piece of work through all the levels uh, it's probably one of my favorite soundtracks of all time and the first game on dreamcast would be another i would say is one of my favorites for the system it's right up there you know i traditionally go back to headhunter and shenmue and echo every mm-hmm. time i turn on the dreamcast they're my, they're my three go-to games every single time i just adore all three of those but echo is what i always go to i love the what they did to, they really translated it well to 3d i think the controls were good uh, it's a bit difficult to aim your sonar if anything is probably my only gripe it can be very difficult to aim your sonar because the controls it's all a big 3d space and just trying to find 
you know, a dolphin who's swimming around at full speed in front of you, it's very difficult to actually hit him dead on mm. with the sonar to talk to him at times. You have to be very particular with the hit. Um, but Sentinels of the Universe, there were six levels demoed in it. Uh, one of them is just a rehash of one of the demos, one of the levels that's in the first game, mm-hmm. the Atlantis, the Atlantis level. Which interestingly, they they added a few extra dolphins to. It was quite a. It's an empty level, really, in yeah. the first game. You're trying to rebuild. It's not uh, the vortex that are fighting the Earth in the reboot. It's they've called them the foe in this particular game. And to be honest with you, there's not a lot of difference between them. They even look kind of similar. Um, they're quite badly designed, if anything. On it's probably my only major gripe. The enemy is a bit pathetic yeah. looking when you actually get to see it in the game. It's like one of those really awkward string puppets <laughs> with his arms waving around. It doesn't look particularly good. Um, but uh, instead of the asteroids, they have the Guardian, which is this big crystal that protects the Earth with a force field uh, from invading attackers from outer space. And that's what this mm-hmm. foe is. It's an invading attacker that manages to finally break through the shield and breaks the Guardian. So in Atlantis, you have to rebuild the Guardian, getting all the crystals mm-hmm. and solving all the puzzles. So that level is in the tech demo for Echo 2. Uh, it looks like you can actually do all the same things in it, although the demo doesn't really show a lot of it. But certainly you can still jump through all the rings that you have to jump through in the first game. And they've added a few extra dolphins around that you can race with. And some of them say things that are done in the tutorial level of the first game. I, I really don't know why they added all that into the Atlantis level, why they added in the dolphins to teach you how to move around and teach you how to catch fish. It's a very mm-hmm. strange thing to have added into it because this was already a level they'd finished. Um, it's not like they were trying to put this into yeah. a new level. Uh, they show an ancient city level, which is completely new. There's a lot of uh, what looks like Greek architecture underwater and you can open the doors and go into the city and go around. There's nothing really in there. Um, it's all very barren. There is a, a kind of a strange-looking blue dolphin or something in the middle of it that you can't interact with, and he's being chased by a shark. And the, in the demo, they do actually kill the shark to save the dolphin, but nothing actually happens. I'm assuming that's going to be that was an intended puzzle or uh, combat sequence at some point that they were going to put in. Um, and there's another shark outside the city that just follows Echo like something out of alien isolation it's actually crazy how quick <laughs> this shark just doesn't leave him alone and i don't recall the sharks in the original game being quite as aggressive as that uh but this one just doesn't leave him alone and i didn't notice that the player could actually kill him either um and there's a third level which is uh, shows a galleon with a pier the galleon again is empty as you can swim into it uh, it looks like it was going to be something quite interesting at some point, but there's nothing in there. Uh, there's some kind of a flashing rock or something that you're, it looks like you were going to be able to pick up on the deck of the sunken ship, but you can't actually pick it up. And other than that, there's not really much in the level. The whole level is just completely empty space. There's not even any weeds underwater to swim around or any rocks. It's just completely barren. Uh, and oddly, whenever Echo jumps out of the water, it's one of the worst I've seen in the demo for performance. It lags horrifically when he jumps out of the water, but it's fine mm. when he's under it. Uh, but again, it's pretty barren. The other levels I've seen, uh, Home of Narwhals, which was interestingly referred to as Ice World uh, in the loading screen for it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's a it's very like the North Pole levels to look like to look at uh, from the first Echo games. So it's it's all icy, uh, snow covered landscape on the on the surface and kind of ice walls underneath. And interestingly, there's a third uh, I'm going to call I'm going to call it a third energy bar added uh, in that zone, which 
isn't parts that I've ever seen of the original game. It looks like it's for temperature is what I'm, I'm assuming it is. So the longer he stays in cold water, the, long, the more this meter goes down and he eventually dies from it. But weirdly, uh, in that level, there is a just a placeholder big blue whale that doesn't you can't talk to it it doesn't even have any animation it's just sort of sitting there in the water and touching it seems to restore this temperature meter for some reason <laughs> which is strange, strange. Yeah. Uh, which is really bizarre but again it's just a kind of a small ice demo an ice level demo with not really much in it uh, there's a two other levels there which are all similar to hanging waters from the first game which are um I don't know if you remember from Echo 2, uh, there was Skyway and oh, Sky God, yeah. Tides and Tube of Tube of the Medusa, which were all these waterways which were yeah. above land in the cloud, in the sky, basically, and they linked all the different la- uh, water masses across the world, was the intended uh, mm. meaning behind them. But in the first Echo, Defender of the Future, very late on in the game, there is a level called Hanging Waters, which is more or less the same kind of a thing but in 3D this time, where you have tubes of water in the sky that you have to negotiate around, and it's really one of the most difficult mm-hmm. levels in the game because it's so easy to get thrown out of them um, and fall to your death. Uh, but there is a there are two levels in the Echo 2 tech demo that have uh, the similar... There's one of them which is just a sphere mm-hmm. above land, and there's nothing else to it, really. Uh, the odd thing with the sphere level I seen was that when you jumped out of it, you just fall to your death because there's nothing outside. But then when he continued, it let him swim around in the sky outside mm. of it, which was very bizarre. But there was nothing else really to the level that there was really nothing else of note anyway. And the same for uh, Hanging Caverns, it's called, which is, I am assuming by the name, uh, it's just a floating cavern in the sky that you can negotiate around. But again, there's nothing really much in it. It's kind of interesting to see these levels, uh, to see what might have yeah. been. Uh, but it's a shame that we never got this. I would have always loved to have seen an Echo sequel on Dreamcast, especially, but unfortunately the Dreamcast finished so soon, I suppose they didn't get a chance no, to do I this. Think, I think the build of the date of the game in February 2001 was obviously after they'd made the announcement that they were that Sega were exit in the hardware business. It's a shame that it, it never made its way onto uh, onto another platform, the way that Echo Defender of the Future got, got ported to PS2. Um, I suppose now that the... Looking at this, it's like five. It's nearly five years old now. This um, since it, the prototype got leaked. Uh, maybe something the modern community will do: finish it off, or or try and put it, make it something cohesive out of it. Be interested to see. But you've definitely um, you've definitely put Echo Defender of the Defender of the Future on my radar now. Uh, I definitely need to play that one, uh, as well as another one that you mentioned, Headhunter, which I've been meaning to get to this year, which I picked up recently. Yeah, Headhunter is great. Uh, both are great, to be honest. Echo is. Again, uh, I find Echo on Dreamcast is regarded very similarly to the first game on the Mega Drive. People either got it or they didn't, and there's very little in between. Uh, Most people tried to play it and got completely lost. I I believe for the PlayStation 2 version, which is not one I'm familiar with, they added in a lot of extra hints as to what to do on some of the levels. Uh, I think they added in extra glyphs you can talk to that actually show you where you should go. Uh, just give you a kind of general direction of what you should go in whereas the Dreamcast one just drops you in gives you a glyph that says you need to do A, B and C and they don't really give you any more than that it's kind of up to you to explore the level figure out where these things are for yourself and then 
figure out how to actually do what they're asking you to do, which is something I always enjoyed. I mean, some of the levels I remember spending two, three hours on just on their mm. own, trying just swimming around, trying to figure them out. And to me, that was I was engaged in that experience. Yeah. I, I enjoyed that for what it was. I love a good puzzle that gets me thinking and gets me trying to work out where to go and what to do. Uh, one of the reasons I love adventure games so much kind of in general. But a lot of people didn't like that aspect. They felt that we're just swimming around and not really getting anywhere. That's the main complaint I've seen with most of people who didn't like Echo. They just didn't feel they were making any progress with the game. But uh, to anyone who gets it, I think uh, their experience is usually very good. No, you've definitely, you've definitely warmed me to the idea. I definitely need to give it, give it a try. Because, yeah, I've, I, I, I've probably played it for about five minutes and just I've just never got the time to, to sink into it. So, no... Thank, thanks, Anthony. That's a brilliant overview of not just the first echo, but the whole series, really. But um, I suppose um, we'll come to the point now where we need to we need to know what your favourite Sega console is. So, if you'd like to tell us, what is your favourite Sega system? Yeah, my favourite Sega system, and it's probably one that you guys are going to roll your eyes at a little bit because uh, I know this is the one you probably don't have as much fondness for as a lot of others I know you appreciate the system a lot but you've always said you feel it's the least Sega of all the consoles they've done and it's keeping in line with uh, Andrew's Andrew's chosen console from the last one of these It's the, for me it's the Sega Dreamcast I love the Sega Dreamcast. Oh, but I think we're both massive fans of the Sega Dreamcast. We both uh, we both bought our consoles on uh, on import. <laughs> um, we couldn't wait for uh, for the PAL release. Um, I think we do feel that it is probably the the get console where Sega lost a little bit of their identity, or probably maybe shed it just to try and capture some of that PlayStation crowd. But um, that aside, absolutely phenomenal console. But what 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 makes it stand out for you? What what made the difference for me with the Dreamcast really, and it, it kind of it's a bit like Echo was the first game I bought on the Mega Drive. The Dreamcast was the first console that we got uh, on launch. Yeah, uh, we've never had a console on launch before, and that was the first one that again I was still young enough at the time. I was only just starting to kind of work part time, and I was able to afford some games, but I couldn't afford a console. But my brother uh, had gone off and bought a Dreamcast and came home with it, and he came home with and pretty sure we got blue stinger mm. with it which was a pretty cool game um trying to think what else he got him jimmy white's two cue ball was another game that he definitely had but i can't remember if that came later or whether he got it on the day uh, i wasn't as fond of that game that was a bit slow uh, even for a snooker game that was a bit slow um ready to rumble boxing uh, absolutely fantastic oh, yeah. fun that game that's really, really good. That was one we got. Uh, Soul Calibur, of course, which was the real, true, next-gen experience mm. of the launch day Dreamcast. That was just something that none of us had ever seen. The smoothness of the movement, the fluidity of everything, the visual quality is still exceptional to go back to now and look at it, um, especially if you play through VGA mode. I just think it looks mm. incredible now. Um we got House of the Dead 2 with the light gun at some point. Again, I can't remember if that was launch day or a little after. Uh, that was an unbelievable experience because we had uh, the first House of the Dead in arcades, in our mm. local arcade that I used to play. And I hadn't had a chance to see the second one um, at that stage. And I hadn't had a chance to play the first one properly. We had a PC demo of it. And that's all we had of House of the Dead. Uh, so my proper exposure to that series came yeah. with the second game or so uh, on Dreamcast with the light gun. And that was an incredible experience to have the light gun for the first time as well. We had Sega Seabass fishing yeah. with the fishing rod controller, which was quite <laughs> neat. 
Um, and eventually then, of course, uh, what really sold me on the Dreamcast was I seen the news that we were getting Resident Evil mm. Code Veronica as an exclusive at some point in the future, which for me, being a Resident Evil fan at that time and still am now, that was a mm-hmm. big deal. I couldn't wait for that game to come out. Come out. Sonic Adventure was phenomenal game uh couldn't believe what i was witnessing when i played that for the first time the speed and smoothness of it was like nothing i'd seen from a platform game at that time and i still think that game holds up really well i always think that's very unfairly criticized nowadays Uh, i think if you play the original sonic adventure on the dreamcast it still holds up fantastic big bigs is probably the only blemish on the whole experience i think big fishing levels but those aside i think it's a very very good game i mean people were raving about it when it was launched um and it's just i think the problem is that nowadays there was the drink there was the gamecube dx version which messed up so much stuff it's not even funny um and then every single so the pc port support of that the xbox 360 ps3 versions they're all ports of that and i think there's more more that's more readily available to people now than the dreamcast version uh, which is a real shame because the original sonic adventure is absolutely it's still absolutely phenomenal um it's just a shame that yeah it, i think it's very unfairly lambasted now um i think it shows that sonic always did work in 3d personally <laughs> Yeah, it's not a lie. I, I don't understand the complaints that the game has got over the years. I mean, all the complaints I see with Sonic Adventure with the bad camera and the controls, and there are common complaints that you see. Most platform games yeah. from those eras had those exact same problems. And for some reason, it's overlooked for those other ones, but Sonic gets yeah. the bad rap for it. I, I don't get it. I really don't get it. And to be honest with you, once you kind of play Sonic Adventure for a little bit, you get used to its little quirks anyway, and you can find your way around quite well. Uh, I don't. I, th- I think the game is fantastic, and I had some really you know, memorable moments going up in the in the whirlwind and having yeah. to work your way back down again, or actually work your way back up to yeah. go to the top of it or something, if I remember right. Um, and the casino level was very cool, having to get all the different rings and bring them back to the vault, and they eventually build up big enough that you can get out of the level. There were some very good, very neat tricks. Being able to travel between sections on the train yeah. was neat. You know, there were a lot of there were a lot of really good ideas in that game. I thought, and I thought they executed them all pretty well. It's a game I still enjoy to play whenever I have the Dreamcast on. Yeah, it's one I still put on uh, a lot. Um, it's one of my go-to get Dreamcast games, uh, and it's it's always in the mix for one of my favourites. So yeah. Um, yeah, ph- phenomenal game. Um, but all of those ones you mentioned there, I, I, I actually got my Dreamcast uh, in April 1999, uh, and that was just after House of the Dead 2 had released uh, in Japan. Um, so I got that along with Sonic Adve- along with Sega Rally. Uh, I got Sonic Adventure 2 and Sega Bass Fisher, or it's Get Bass in Japan. I got them, I think, a month later. Um, so yeah, a lot of those games I've got similarly fond memories of and similarly um, still play a lot of them now. Um, I'm actually trying to get another fishing controller to play to play Get Bass on <laughs> because uh, yeah, it's lots of fun. I've got it on. It's not it's not as much fun with the um, with the controller though, um, unfortunately. Um, but I was playing it recently, and my, my wife came in and was like, "Are you playing a fishing game?" Yes. It's surprisingly <laughs> yeah. good fun, that game. You wouldn't think it, but it is. <laughs> especially with the controller. If you have the fishing controller, especially, yeah, it's, it's good. It's, it's brilliant. I think it's one of the games I tried to sell how good the Dreamcast was to my friends when I had it uh, on import. It's like, look how good this is. And it's just the, it's just the little like, like the, the little quirks. It's like the, 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 the Sega guitar 
as you were saying, that's quite prominent in the in the soundtrack. It's definitely got that that sort of wah wah sound, and yeah, uh, yeah the whole yeah. the whole crazy uh, crazy announcement. I mean, we do we do we do James and I we do love for the crazy Sega announcers, but it's the old fish, and then that gets up. What a big one! <laughs> of course, they kept up that screaming guitar tradition in Ferrari F three five five Challenge which is another phenomenal arcade port, which on which there were so many for the Dreamcast. Uh, that game is just... I, I still go back to that, especially with the racing wheel. That's a just stunning game. And nothing really plays like that game that I've played in recent years. Yeah, it's a br- brilliant game. It's one... Um, it's interesting, because, again, James, James educated me <laughs> on this, uh, brought to my attention that there was a, an arcade-only sequel Um to a free free five free five five challenge where they use the additional tracks from the Dreamcast port because obviously the Dreamcast port added a load of extra features and they just swapped the tracks out uh, and called it a free five five challenge two. Um, I never, I never yeah. knew it was a sequel. <laughs> so now you know. Yeah, I only, I only, yeah. only found out. Um, James only told me. Um, what was it the other, the other week? I think. Uh, a couple of, uh, but was it? End, end the last well, end, start of the week, I think yeah. it was. It's always, I never knew there was another Ferrari. Yeah, I mean, it's basically the same. The game's it's more of a expansion than the sequel. It's just it takes out all the original arcade tracks and then puts in the ones from the Dreamcast game, like uh, Laguna Seca and um, um, Nuremberg. Um, all that puts those tracks back in. Um, but yeah, so it's it's arcade sequel name only. You don't need a sequel to the Dreamcast because it's the Dreamcast already is basically both games in one. But yeah, interesting that was. But yeah, every five five challenge, it's an incredible game. It's it's another one I I do like to to put on now and again. But I'm absolutely useless at it. So. Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's it's one of those games that you really have to put mm. a lot of time into. You're not going to beat that game in a hurry. No, not at all. Oh. You have to work very hard just to get the car to go around the track and not come last. Yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm more of an arcade racer than a sim racer, but um, when it comes to sim games, that that's one that I'm. That's one of my favourites, absolutely. So you a Suzuki game. It is, that, isn't it? It is another one yeah. with which is um, is it reflects his obsessive penchant to uh, to reflect <laughs> certain bits of, of of real life in games. Like uh, I was reading something the the other week about how. Um, how he watched 70 Kung Fu movies and was studying poise and movement and everything for Virtua Fighter. And I think when we had Andrew on, we were talking about uh, Shenmue and how, and how you know, it's, it, the, there's a obsessive sense of de- de- detail in that one, in Shenmue. And I think it's the same in F355 Challenge, you know, the level of detail. I mean, he owned a, he owned a, that, 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 that car, didn't he? So um, <laughs> it's all, it's all probably, probably pretty much built from his experiences. So, yeah, it's a, a a crazy genius that guy. Absolutely love him. <laughs> yeah, he is a genius. It's the uh, just going back to the Dreamcast. It's the one thing at the time that really kind of blew me away was that this was the first time we were getting uh, actual arcade perfect ports on mm-hmm. a home console, um, and that sort of watered down imitations of the arcade game which i had grown up with on the commodore yeah. obviously uh they were a, a lot better on mega drive but still not quite 
100% accurate in some cases. But then by the time we got to the Dreamcast, uh, obviously I missed Saturn back in the day, unfortunately, which I would have loved to have played through Virtua Cop and Virtua Fighter and Sega Rally and all those on that system, but we just never had one at the time. Uh, by the time we got then to the Dreamcast, uh, we got Crazy Taxi, we got Virtua Tennis, we got Sega Rally 2, we got Ferrari F355, as we've said. You know, they were all coming to the system that Sega were in their prime for arcade releases at this time. Um, I mean, they were, they were all incredible games that you could bring home and they were the same as the game you played in the arcade. Yeah. It was, unfortunately, it probably contributed badly towards the arcade industry yeah. as a whole, but... At the time, it was great to have these things at home. So, <laughs> no, hit the nail on the head, mate. I think, um, well, yeah, it's it's a double-edged sword because on one hand, yeah, it was the first time you'd had arcade quality ports in the home. Obviously, the Saturn had some fantastic arcade ports, and so did the PlayStation. I mean, Virtua Fighter Two. Me and James will wax on about the Saturn port of that all the time, and the same with Sega Rally. But you put the you put them next to the arcade machine, and there are there are obvious differences, but the, the Dreamcast was the first time when it wasn't just arcade perfect. You had games like Soul Calibur, which were better than arcade perfect, better than what you were seeing on uh, in the arcades at the time, which was an tremendous, <clears throat> tremendously exciting uh, thing to happen for you to have these sort of more powerful than arcade machines in your home. But also, yeah, sadly, uh, con- probably contributed to the to the demise of the arcade scene. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a shame, but uh, terribly exciting when when uh, as an early Dreamcast owner, as I say, House of the Dead two and uh, uh, Get Bass and Sega Rally, three of my three of my three of my first Dreamcast games. So all arcade ports and all absolutely stellar. Sega Rally two maybe not so much, but still, um, in my head, it looks close enough. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um... No, it's definitely a system I still have hooked up full-time here in the house, uh, and I still go back to on a regular enough occasion. As I say, I'll normally blast away at Headhunter, or I'll put on uh, Echo, or Shenmue. I have Shenmue less on the Dreamcast these days because the PC ports are actually out there now. Uh, so I've tended to play those more mm. so recently. Um, but yeah, I adore everything about I, Everything from the look, the Dreamcast is the, one of the prettiest consoles I think that's ever yeah. been put out there. Uh, I love the feel of the controller, even though it's only got one analog stick and it's pretty badly maligned for that. But I still like the controller. I love the size of it. It fits nicely in my hands. And I love the VMU aspect of it, which was a very cool feature for the time. Um, Especially for things like Resident Evil, where it would show your ammo count and your health on it, which was a a cool little feature to have. Um, And we got loads of PC ports. I remember actually, I think Dan, you corrected me on this because I wasn't aware of it. I always assumed the PC ports were easier to do on the Dreamcast than they were. Uh, because, Especially because the Resident Evil ports were the ones I was basing my assumptions on because they really are straight from PC to Dreamcast in terms of how they look, how they play. Dino Crisis the same. It just It's a straight mm. rip of the PC game. Uh, Shadow Man is a straight rip yeah. of the PC game. I would, I would say Soul Reaver is very close to that as well it didn't feel like you were getting the playstation ports as such it felt like you were getting the yeah. pc versions just from different the same modes as the pc game were included the same movement uh, the characters in resident evil move a bit faster in, on the pc than they do on the playstation they run faster and they turn faster and that's part of what you get on the dreamcast port so it was just something i had always assumed was because it was running off of windows that was something that was easier to do which you were saying to me before that actually made life very i think difficult it's, at the time. so for those ones i think they use the pc assets and these pc port as a, as a base 
Um, it's the Windows CE games where they're seemingly because there's this additional layer in the in the. I don't know if it's uh, to do with the API or I, I don't know too much about it because there's an extra layer to make the porting process uh, as simple as possible. Where they do use Windows CE, uh, it does inhibit performance. That's something that was true for Sega Rally 2 and the Northwood. You look at the actual Windows CE games and uh, if you go through that list, they are a lot more simple, simple PC ports. Ones that aren't so much maximizing the power of the Dreamcast, and while while the Resident Evil ports that you mentioned aren't really pushing the Dreamcast to its limit, uh, I don't think they use Windows CE, so they wouldn't have been they, they would have I don't think they would have been too difficult compared to what uh, like porting from the Sony PlayStation, but they weren't as sort of the as easy as say going from Windows CE. But I think it's it's to the benefit of performance that they didn't use that sort of middleware to do that but no it's, it's yeah. interesting um but no it, yeah it's very, very well serviced for the resident evil games as well the Dreamcast. it was and it always makes me wonder if if sega had stayed in the hardware game a couple more years would we have got games like resident evil zero or even the resident yeah. evil remake eventually on dreamcast instead of gamecube would they have stayed with sega and done that because capcom really supported the dreamcast they very did. very well yeah, I mean, we, 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 as we say on our on our Capcom and uh, Sega episode, um, they were one of the staunchest supporters of, of both the of Saturn and the Dreamcast. Um, their Dreamcast, that I think they was easily the second best publisher on the system. Um, a lot of my games that I play on the Dreamcast now are some of my favorite. A lot of my favorites are Capcom games. So, yeah, um, mainly fighters because yeah, because I I do love my fighting games. But yeah, the Resident Evil games, the, the Dino Crisis ports, um, and their fighting games, and then that like, exclusive stuff like Tech Romancer and especially Power Stone. So yeah, it was um, they supported it phenomenally. No, so, yeah, brilliant, brilliant stuff. Um, so thanks for that, and that's uh, that's been it's been brilliant fun to chat to you on here. Um, why don't you tell our listeners uh, where they can find you? Um, tell us a bit more about uh, yeah where where, they, where can they find you and what what you're up to these days? Uh, well, really, I suppose the, the main place to see me these days or find me is on Twitter. Uh, my handle is ajc twenty four twenty four. Really, I don't have a lot else to add to that. Um, I don't have gaming channels or blogs or anything like that of my own. I'm just I'm just on Twitter, usually posting about some kind of a game that I'm playing this week or some topic in gaming that's come up in a number of different conversations. I'll normally put my angle on it and try and get people talking about it. Uh, occasionally post some music stuff. That's really all I do on Twitter. Just whittle away the hours, especially these days now we're all in lockdown. <laughs> There's not a lot else to do in the evening times. Uh, log on, see what's happening in the gaming community. These days, usually a lot of arguments. But, but the, not not the, so much on the retro one, but uh, or I'd hope not. But no, no but um, Anthony, it's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, yeah, I urge anyone that's in the gaming community to 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 look look Anthony up. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to. Uh, I always enjoy our little um, discussions on Twitter, mate. So brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, so yeah, uh, we'd love to hear from our listeners. You can catch me uh, at swooper underscore D. You can catch James at the Sagaholic. Um, and if you'd like to be on my favorite Sega, uh, just drop us a line. So until next time, say, stay retro. See you soon. Cheers, guys. Bye-bye. <laughs>